Welcome to the Education Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. In this episode, you will hear part one of my conversation with Lucy Smith, Director of Engaged Learning at Salt Lake Community College. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. My guest today is Lucy Smith, Director of Engaged Learning at Salt Lake Community College. Hi, Lucy. Hi. It's great to have you here. Thank you. So, um, Lucy, you are from Salt Lake Community College. We've, um, I've had the pleasure of working with SLCC for a number of years. I've been proud to have been um, friends and a colleague with David Hubert, um, uh, uh, whom you work with, and others at Salt Lake Community College. Uh, but you and I haven't really done a lot of work together. Um, I have learned about your work through um, various, you know, folks at at SLCC, and also got to attend one of your sessions at um, the ABLE conference this last. Um, I think it was in July, right? Yeah. Uh, in, during the summer in July, and uh, I was blown away. So I thought, hey, you know, it'd be great for us to get in touch and try to, um, you know, share some of share some of what you shared there, but probably hopefully more as well. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I, I hope that we get to do today. Um, and I also want you to know that, uh, uh, I, I did get to, um, also talk to David Hubert, um, who's going to be in a, featured in a different episode and also one of your students, Martin Gaussin, who's going to be another episode as well. And so I'm just so excited to be able to highlight some of the amazing work that's happening at Salt Lake. Um, okay. So do you want to tell us a little bit about, you know, sort of uh, your history, um, sort of where you're from and how, what, what makes you get into this, um, you know, this work and what do you do as the engage, uh, director of engaged learning? Yeah, so um, so I'll refer to Salt Lake Community College. Mo- most of us refer to it as SLIC. So you know that's Salt Lake Community College. It rolls off the tongue a little. It's a little more fun than SLCC, right? So when I say SLIC, you'll know what I'm talking about. And um, I have been at the college now for nine years. And I think I will, I found my home. Well, I know I found my home and I will retire here. I, I do. I love my work and um, yeah, I enjoy my boss, David Hubert, and do enjoy um, what I do. And it's very much in my, um, in my wheelhouse and, and where I um, got my degree. My degree, um, I, my master's degree is in um, Parks, Rec, and Tourism and specifically experiential education. So um really focused on that, like hands-on um, learning, um, those hands-on learning aspects of um, higher ed, and then, of course, a reflection piece. So the Engaged Learning Office is fairly new. It has only been in existence for about six years, and I actually, since I've been at the college for nine, I started in our service center, which is called the Thane Center it was the Thane Center for Service and Learning. Now it's changed names. The Thane Center for Service, Leadership, and Community Engagement. 
hopefully I might, I might, might have that name. Um, it's just recently changed. So hopefully I got that name correct. And anyway, that's so I started there and just running the service learning program. The name's changed now to community engaged learning. Um, that's just follows the trends in the field and it speaks more to the reciprocal nature of the pedagogy. So yeah, so I support um, the community engaged learning program and then also uh, study away. And that's an umbrella term for study abroad and domestic study. So essentially, my office helps support high impact practices in the curriculum and specifically through faculty develop, primarily through faculty development. So helping faculty formally integrate service in the curriculum or global learning in the form of study abroad or domestic study. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I get to travel on study abroad trips. Well, I did before COVID and I, it, it has come back, <laughs> right. which is great, which I'm thrilled about. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite parts of my job, of course. Yeah. And um, yeah, and get to do a lot of things, do work that I care about that is dealing with important social issues and helping faculty build structures so students can can deal with the issues that they care about that's relevant to their learning in the classroom. And to me, that's really valuable. Um, And, and it's all things that I care deeply about. Now you, you, um, there's a lot to unpack there. So I wanted to um, go roll back for a few seconds. You had talked about high impact practice. Um, I think some of our listeners know what, what it is, but some may not. Do you want to, talk a little bit about what it what it is and what you mean by that yeah sure thank you I should the um, co- the term I believe was coined by George Koo and it's the Association of American colleges and universities and they just changed their name too as as well but I American American Association of colleges and universities anyway they coined the term and helped support a lot of the research that George Koo did and so George Koo um, did research on how high impact practices impact students and the specifically the high impact practices um, are service learning right so community engaged learning um, study abroad in the form of like broadly cl- uh, global learning e-portfolio is one which I'm sure um, Jeff that you're aware of and probably many folks who are who use e-portfolios in their in their work and in higher ed and also learning communities um, coll- uh, collaborative learning first year experiences and I might be forgetting a couple. I am. Yeah, there are 11 altogether. I always forget some of them to writing across the curriculum undergraduate research. Oh, maybe. yes. Yeah. Yes. So, undergraduate research and writing intensive. Thank you. Yeah, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Anyway, there are, it's things that a lot of schools do, um, whether they know they're doing it as a high impact practice. Uh, but they they do uh, a lot of schools do this already in many different shapes and forms. You know they yes. might do project based learning. They may do capstone projects. They may yes. do all these different things. Yes. Um, but high impact practice also seems to have a have a um, uh, have a some really great characteristics in that it impacts large groups of people and um, in oftentimes a very equitable way too. Um, Yes. 
Yeah. So, so some, a lot of George Koo's work was focused on, um, yeah, how high impact practices impact students and specifically it impacts students' retention and engagement, right? So anything that does that, we, we want to adopt. Um, and specifically for underrepresented students of color, um, they are particularly beneficial. So that's something um, as an institution, right? We're a community college and um, seeking a, a Hispanic, um, the Hispanic serving institution designation. We have uh, a large um, population of first-generation students, students of color, right? Students who um, traditionally have been underrepresented in in higher education. So, um, so we have a really large focus on equity, um, equity and inclusion, and high-impact practices, um, specifically the community-engaged learning program. It's been around. It mirrors the development in the field, and it's been around since 2003. So it precedes me um, by quite a bit, and has actually has been, has one of the more robust structures at the college for, um, for in in terms of high impact practices. The one of the more robust structures out of all the high impact practices um, because it's been around a long time. And it's interesting because we. Right, like community colleges for undergraduate research, for example, we don't have undergraduate research is still very much decentralized. So if you compare community engaged learning, which is very centralized, I help support it. I track the faculty that I work with. I, fa I track specific designated classes. We ha I have a committee that approves the courses using a rubric based off national literature and, and research from other um, national institutions, right? And um, there's a renewal process. There's funding involved for faculty. There's funding involved for students. There's recognition. There's honors for students. All of those things that it's very much like has a centralized structure and funding that has been around a really long time. But then you compare that to like undergraduate research. And it's interesting because we are now just having these conversations about undergraduate research. It is happening, but there is not any one centralized unit that is helping to support undergraduate research. That is also typical, I believe, of community colleges, right? That we, we are not research one institutions, right? right? We you have less of a research focus and your faculty aren't there necessarily having pure research roles where in right. uh, R1 school, some faculty members, their their entire job is to research, to do research and right. more opportunities in that way. Although right. I must say that I, you know, we work with, I mean, we have lots of colleagues in, in, in said in such institutions and, and at the same time, they're not that structured either. Um, <laughs> you know, interestingly, because it's almost like, do you get to, have the ear of that particular researcher and are they willing to do it? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which is interesting because it's, <laughs> which because we're just starting this committee to help support undergraduate research. Right. And there's this push to say, Hey, we should formalize the structures for undergraduate research. We should provide funding. This takes extra work for faculty. We should provide recognition and funding and we should track it and do all these things that we do for community engaged learning. Yeah. And then we're like, okay, but right, that takes people, that takes resources. We're now down seven percent in our with our enrollment because COVID has hit us very hard. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, our, our our population of students have been extremely hard hit by COVID. Enrollments are down, and we don't. We're actually looking at, uh, but very much like significant budget cuts. Um, across the college and in academic affairs, we are not looking at hiring additional people, no matter what the need is right now to support undergraduate right. research. But going back to what we were talking about, one point I wanted to make was you were saying that, and you've said this a couple of times, that 
right, that these things are happening at many other institutions and there may not be formalized structures. But I would argue, and George Koo argues this, and AAC and you argues this, that really to ensure that high impact practices are making the biggest impact, you should have formalized definitions, structures, right, rubrics, things of that nature, because then otherwise people are just like, oh, I do it. Oh, I do it. Oh, yeah. Hey, yeah, I'm doing community-engaged learning, and they're doing X, Y, and Z, or I'm doing undergraduate research, but without some structure behind it, you know, and you hate to add more bureaucracy, but at the same time, that structure also has, there's there's like a quality control and also support for faculty who want to engage in the work and support for students who want to engage in the work too. And I want to, I would like to add to that, that without the structure, without the, that kind of support, you also lose the the long-term sustainability. Oftentimes you have that one faculty members who's super, you know, enthusiastic about a certain types of program. And it's great. Sometimes we benefit so much from single individual, but that individual sometimes will retire or will move to a different location or get, you know, hired by someone else. And then suddenly um, you're left with this void that no one can fill because it was it was basically you know created based on one person's charisma and and extra work and the the extra abilities that they bring to the table yes. um, and that is not long term a long term solution you know yeah that's exactly right and that's in the um community engaged learning realm, that's very much where engaged departments come in, right? And Kevin Keskis, who really helped push the engaged department framework forward um, in the field, that's really part of it is that, right, is that the, you know, this, this issue of having random designated community engaged learning courses by passionate faculty, it's good, and we should have that, and we're going to continue to have that. But by building a larger structure, which is to say an engaged department, which is a whole cohort of faculty along with supportive administrators, looking at mission, vision, values as it relates to civic and community engagement, right? Um, Long-term community partners that are department-level community partners. It's like building these structures out so that this, so that the support for civic and community engaged learning more broadly than just, you know, this faculty or that faculty and more broadly than just on a course level, but across the whole department, that's important work that really helps institutionalize civic and community engagement. And that's something where as a community college, it makes sense because we've been deeply engaged in that work. And I've been deeply engaged in that work since I started nine years ago. And it's been really great work that has really been college-wide and we have amazing support, very much tied to our communities. And now, and now again, looking at this other side of it from undergraduate research, research I'm like, people want to do the same thing with undergraduate research. You know, we're like, okay, well, can we do it with a committee and just add another hat to, you know, our five other hats that we're wearing? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's yeah, kind of hard. Kind of, yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, look, there's, there's a reason that the program, I think you said, you mentioned started in 2003 and it's still mm-hmm. thriving today. So this mm-hmm. is almost 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's what sustainability looks like when you have that structure that lives beyond, you know, one person's, um, you know, initial contribution. I do think that a lot of, a lot of times in, 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 in a sort of higher education, it does take the initial sort of push by someone an initiative but the initiative needs to go beyond the initiative stage 
in order to sustain itself for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned earlier, COVID has made certain things really tough this last few years, all of, all of the study away. I mean, there wasn't travel to, to, to any travel to speak of for a little while. Um, what does that do to your program and how, how do you, how do you deal with that? And how, how are you coming back now? Yeah, well, I feel really lucky <laughs> that that my job was not just study away <laughs> because, <laughs> because yeah. a lot of people in the in the study abroad field, particularly the study abroad is really big, right? It's a, yeah. it's huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, whereas study away more broadly and like domestic study is a fairly new, you know, new thing. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, there's a lot of organizations that shut down, a lot of people that lost their jobs, right? There was a lot of, I mean, it was one of the, one of the areas really that was hit the hardest because tra- because nobody could travel. And yeah. um, for me at the college, we, we are, again, typical of a community college in that our study abroad programs are, are really small. Study away, we only have, we only run a handful of study abroad programs and we're just trying to get st- uh, domestic study um, off the ground. And the part of the intent behind um, getting domestic study created is that it's an alternative to study abroad that is less expensive, less time, more accessible. But depending on where you go in the U.S., you can have equally as educative experiences mm-hmm. and it can be a more equitable practice, right? Because we can um, serve more students. So we just ran our first domestic study trip this last summer but study abroad, yeah, we just basically took a break yeah. for the past yeah. two years. We didn't run anything in 2020 or anything in 2021. And then we ran one trip, Costa Rica, this past spring. And I feel blessed because the bulk of my job is, I mean, I spend a lot of time with the study away programs, but in the absence of those, I worked on structure building. I worked on all the things that were like that bark at you all the time. That's like the wood, it'd be nice to do this, but like not crucial, right? Like developing your web pages, building more resources. So like I, I spent the a bulk of COVID doing the things that are really hard to do, not as fun as like traveling with students and doing retreats and, you know, faculty like workshops and professional development, all the fun, exciting stuff that I, I, I really enjoy. I wasn't able to do any of that. And I just had to sit behind a computer, you know, updating like web pages and policies and procedures and frameworks and all that stuff. But coming out the other end now, it's all really good because yeah, I got a really lot prepared. of, yeah, yeah, yes. go. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of stuff out of my head and now onto the web. And I updated a lot of our rubrics and just got a lot of things built out with our programs that now can be more sustainable because it's not stuff where I have to always like, you know what I mean? Send a special email with, here's all the info. I can just, here's a link, you know, here's the, here's the structure building. So for me, yeah, even though it was really hard because it was not all that fun, (laughs) frankly, it was good during COVID to spend time on the, yeah, good Mm -hmm. to do the nice to do things versus the like, all the, just the crucial yeah, gotta be done. It's like you upgraded the program, you know, <laughs> during that time. I mean, that, that happens to lots of um, lots of fields, whether even outside of education too. You know, during that time, you kind of get to, you know, if you're able to, you know, if you if 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 your job still existed, you know, are they able to to sustain it? That that you were able to use that time to um, 
make improvements that usually during a packed schedule, those are all those nice to haves. You always think it's nice to have, but then by the time everything hits, you have no time for it. By the time it comes back around next year, it's just that same nice to have again. That's right. right. And the same pattern for 20 years. And so (laughs) it's nice that you got a little bit of time that you can go, oh, wait, hold on. And I, I must say that the study away and abroad both were hit also in a I feel like it's in a way harder than even some of the other programs in that, I don't know, I felt like in 2020 and maybe even 21, there was a little sense of, will we ever be able to travel again? <laughs> like, you know, like there was a, con- conceivably, we might all decide that traveling is just not worth it anymore. Um, or that you know, maybe we don't even get to decide that <laughs> it just decided for us. I mean, I, uh, I, I looked into traveling to um, Hong Kong like recently, mm-hmm. and the travel policy right now is as such that I, you know, the at least the U.S. you know travel.gov site basically recommend if you don't have to go, please don't go because you know, you, you get there right now, the policy is they will quarantine you automatically in their own location, in their own facilities, and they will quarantine you for, you know, any amount of time. And most people saying it's three weeks before they might let you out. <laughs> and and if you did, you know, catch COVID during that three weeks, it's again up to their own treatments. You can go anywhere. Um, and, 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 that's tough, right? I mean, that you, you can't run any programs like that. Right. Um, and so in any case, um, I do think that it's interesting to have the study away thing. Um, I actually have talked to a lot of students who would say study abroad, like actually parents, undocumented, you know, with undocumented parents and undocumented children who say study abroad is... I mean, we, we tried our hardest to keep ourselves here. We can't go anywhere. Right. Um, we don't have a passport to come back. Right. That's for, that's not for us. That's, right. that's a luxury that right. we don't get, you know, and, right. um, and it's, uh, it's very, it's, uh, I think that the ability for them to be able to travel locally could level that playing field by a lot, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the hope. That's the concept. And and so we ran a trip to Louisiana um this past summer and yeah, it was great. It was really interesting. The students that must the, have been great. Yeah. And and the reflections that students that, that this is part of I, I will shift a little bit here to ePortfolios. <laughs> and the reason is is because I, I didn't I wasn't able to go on that trip. Um I hurt myself, I hurt my knee. And so last minute oh. I had a call. Yeah, I, I'm okay now. But my colleague stepped in and so I didn't get to go to see how it went and to evaluate, but I was able to after the fact, we have a requirement in um in all my programs that ePortfolio students have to use ePortfolio. Um and so for all the study away programs, um, as a part of like scholarship funding and just participating in study away, they have to um, post about it in their e-portfolio and um, they have to reflect on it and talk about, you know, what what the experience was like. And re- reading the e-portfolios from the students from Louisiana, it was like, it was awesome. It was so good. I mean, it's that, been amazing. The food, it, the music, the, yeah, you know, all yeah. that, yeah. 
Yeah. And, and talking, I mean, there was, a, you know, really good prompt um, from the faculty member talking about power and privilege and because they learn a lot about the history of Louisiana and how the role mm. that Louisiana played in the Civil War and in the, in the U.S., right, when the forming of our, our country and, um, and the students reflected specifically one reflection prompt was on power and privilege and what they learned, mm. you know, about that. And they toured some plantations and learned about slavery in the U.S. And that was some pretty powerful stuff that they reflected on. Um, just from Louisiana, right? Just around the corner. Um, And yeah, it was, it was a really neat, it was a neat trip. And Costa Rica was amazing as well, but it's different again to see the, how, what domestic study can do, because it's something that's a little bit, it's new for us to do it. And I think across the field in higher ed, it's somewhat new. Alternative breaks, which are a co-curricular service, domestic travel, like domestic service-based trips, those are usually in student affairs. Those are not new. Those have been around a long time, but I think that the curricular domestic-based travel is, is somewhat Mm -hmm. new. So Yeah. And so reading all the reflections and then and then we have some funding for high going back to high impact practices, some funding that we distribute to students. Our president supports high impact practices, of course, because we want to retain students. Right. And any students who get scholarship money for high impact practices or high impact practice funding also have to report out in their e-portfolio. And um, it's a lot of work because it's a decent amount of money and I, I have to do it all. And I kind of, you know, yes, sometimes you get mired in the administrivia right and you're like oh man <laughs> but then when I read in the students' portfolios like the honors yeah. students and the experience oh. they had at the western honors conference and the, the their poster presentations focused on undergraduate research I was like oh wow okay this is why I'm doing this this is why I'm willing to like do all this administrative work because I can see the power that of what it does for students but I wouldn't see that without having a window through e-portfolios to be able to see from students in their own voices, not filtered through the trip lead or the faculty lead or whoever said, oh, this, here's the final report and here's what, here's what happened. I don't have that ability to just talk to all the students who traveled, but you know, it, we had, you know, probably a hundred, maybe, you know, 200 students or something, you know, just this past year, probably a hundred or so travel with high impact practice funding. And I reviewed as many of the e-portfolios as I could, and they were just, it was awesome. I was touched. I was like, okay, I can do this again. I can manage I like, this money again. <laughs> I like how you described it as sort of this window into how they, what they're learning. You know, it's a, it's that window or that lens that the students themselves get to create and other people get to see. It's, um, it almost feels like, it almost feels a little bit like, you know, once you've started doing it, it feels like, oh, this is what driving with a rear mirror looks like, <laughs> you know, like before I just kind of go, you know, and whatever I don't hit, I don't hit, but whoever's behind me, good luck. Right. Um, and, and I, I think it's, uh, I think it's, I think it's really beautiful that you said that. And, and there's one more thing that I always find really interesting. And I know that People talk about it in different ways. You know, some people talk about e-portfolio being one of the 11 high impact practices is one that they call a meta high impact mm-hmm. practice where you can sort of couple that with any of the other ones. So you're doing, you are like a live example of that e-portfolio plus study abroad, e-portfolio plus service learning plus, you know, undergraduate research or what have you. Um, it, it really sort of does this thing where 
it amplifies whatever it is that you're doing. And in some ways, ePortfolio itself is sort of this amplifier. It's just amplifier of your own lens of seeing what you're doing, you know? And, um, and, and that's, that's a pretty powerful concept, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and we talked about um, David Hubert, right, earlier, um, who at, at Slick has been just such a champion for ePortfolio and a champion for so many years against so many formidable. Like when we first started, it was just there's and, and we still, of course, have our, our share of naysayers who are like, I don't get this. What's the point? Why are we doing this? This is just additional work for the students. It doesn't matter. But from my perspective, running programs, right? And I also do adjunct faculty work, right? So I get both perspectives. I'm administrator and a, and a faculty member as well, right? But from my from where I sit as an administrator, seeing what students have learned across the college within high impact practices is extremely, extremely powerful. Um, and then as a faculty member, you know, right? Like I, I see it, I could, I can see that perspective because as a faculty member, you see that firsthand with your students, you assess the learning, you see the learning, you see all that. So they're like, man, why do we need to do this also on this <laughs> right. platform? Right. But as yeah. administrators, we don't get to see that. And, and I lead assessment efforts for our civic literacy learning outcome. Right. And that's through the community engaged learning program. And we do assessment, um, through ePortfolio. So we we pull um, student artifacts from ePortfolio every year to for, from designated community-engaged learning classes to see how well, if and how students are making gains with the civic literacy learning outcome. And that provides, again, a, t a window across campus for, for civic learning that you otherwise wouldn't get. I mean, yes, you, we can pull assignments and have faculty send us a site, you know, specifically like uh, you know, assignments for, for their classes, but I don't know, there's, there's a certain freedom and awesomeness in being able to just pull information yourself about students to see what's happening with them. It's kind of a beautiful, beautiful thing, really. This concludes part one of our conversation. To hear part two, be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. The Digication Scholars Conversation series is brought to you by Digication, a technology platform powering the most innovative e-portfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Thanks for tuning in.